Today, as you know, we are in a series uh, titled Modern Problems, Ancient Solutions. And, and this series deals with a number of issues that are becoming more and more prominent at an alarming rate as our society changes faster and faster as society goes on. And as a result, people struggle with things like anxiety and uncertainty and self-identity at alarming rates, even amongst all the modern technologies that we have. Even in the medical field, we have some of the greatest medical advances our society has ever known, technologies and, and knowledge of how to cure things, and yet, Death seems to stun our generation even more so than it has generations in the past. Our law enforcement have some of the best technology money can buy, have intelligence networks that are as great as they've ever been, and yet injustices still seem to plague our communities, our nations, at alarming rates. And what's interesting is even though these are modern day problems, uh, they didn't begin uh, with our generation. They have been issues that have plagued humanity from the beginning of time. And so today as we continue this series uh, on modern problems and ancient solutions, our, our goal is to examine some ancient time-tested solutions to help us face issues that have really uh, plagued humanity and challenged every single generation that we faced. Uh, today we're gonna look at the concept of mortality. And if you've lived any amount of time, you know that death is gonna come your way. You are not going to avoid it. I've watched my mom uh, pass away with Alzheimer's and many complications well beyond or before her years. Uh, I've received a phone call from the coroner in Colorado Springs uh, telling me that my 26-year-old brother was killed in a plane crash. I've also uh, been with my family and four kids as we went to the doctor's office to excitedly see the sonogram of our fifth child who was about to be born in a number of weeks only to get the results back saying that she had such a large tumor on her that she had less than a 10% chance to survive. See, if you've lived any length of time, you're gonna face death. If there's one thing that every single one of us here in this auditorium has in common, it's the fact that you're gonna die. Every one of us has that in common. However, I think what we have forgotten is that even though every single one of us is guaranteed to die, not every single one of us is guaranteed to live. And unfortunately, most of us spend our lives with the mindset of how can I avoid death? instead of coming to grips with the fact that that's going to happen and finding the courage to face it in such a way that it truly allows you to live the life that you're given. That's what we're gonna look at in today's passage, that until you have the courage to face death, you will never be able to live the life that God has given you. And so I want to show you two main things in our passage today. First is, what does it take to courageously face death? And then how can I courageously face death? What does it take to courageously face death? And how can I courageously face death? So if you have your Bibles with you today, uh, we're gonna be in Psalm 63, like the song we sang. Psalm 63 and we're gonna walk through this passage to answer these questions. What, uh, 
must I do to face death courageously? And how must I prepare myself to face death courageously so that ultimately I can truly live? Psalm 63 is where we're going to be today. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you, if you don't, to grab one of the Bibles and the chairs in front of you. On your worship guide, you can follow along in the back with notes, and the page number in that Bible is there for you. I'd encourage you to follow along. It'll also be on the screen, but get familiar with where these passages are in your Bible. That way you can go back to them uh, as you address these issues in your life going forward. Let's pray, and we'll jump into this passage. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you that that you knew enough about this world that we would live in, that you would leave for us writings that were inspired by your Holy Spirit, but written through real people who lived in the same world that we live in and faced the same issues that we face. So that whether this passage was written 3,000 years ago or three minutes ago, it's every bit as relevant because it comes from the one who created all life and understands how we were put together. So Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would open our hearts and our minds to these truths so that we might better face the inevitable in our life of our mortality and our death so that we might live more fully and truly according to how you've created us. Ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 63, uh, to give a little background and we'll look into it, this is a psalm uh, that was actually gives us a title and sometimes these titles in your Bible when they're italicized or depending on how your Bible has its context, some titles are man-made. They're put in by those who create the Bible to kind of give you some organization so you know topics or breakdowns in the Bible. Those aren't original. But many titles, like many of your Bibles will have say an italicized title before the numbers in the psalm, and then you'll have another title, maybe in all caps or something, right next to the numbers in your Bible, maybe in all caps and or something, and that's actually part of the original inspired Bible text. It's a psalm, or written out there in Hebrew, actually put in there to give you some context to it, uh, is that one. So this one's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, the context of it. But David wrote this while he was wandering in the wilderness of Judah. And he's had several psalms that were written in that kind of context. Some before he was king, when Saul was chasing after him, uh, prior to David becoming king. You'll see a number of the psalms written in that context and how he addressed things there. This one, we believe, was written uh, afterwards when he was king and had been king for quite a while. And Absalom, one of his sons, was uh, kind of causing a coup and trying to take over his own dad's kingship uh, because David refers to himself as the king later in the psalm so most likely this took place uh, during that time period afterwards and we'll look at that in a minute. So let's read we're going to look at the first four verses that give us uh, what we need must do in order to face death courageously. It says oh God you are my God earnestly I seek you My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. 
So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. So here's the first answer to our question. What must I do to face death courageously? And here's David's answer. Here's what we learned from this psalm. Is I can face death courageously when I am satisfied in the steadfast love of God. I can face death courageously when I'm satisfied in the steadfast love of God. David reveals this. He, think of this. He wrote this psalm in the midst of this event taking place. Not just like as it was coming or as he was pondering it. He was living it out. And in that day, in those kingdoms, if you understood what it meant to have a coup and what he was going through, it wasn't like you're just sitting in your own cozy home thinking about someone at work that's kind of giving you a hard time. That's not how it was. You were thrown out of your home. You were living on the run. You were living in the wilderness. And literally, you were constantly checking your back at any moment because your life was being threatened. That was the setup of this whole uh, situation. I want to read uh, some of the context of it. This psalm comes out of the context of the history in 2 Samuel. Uh, so we're going to go to these passages now. And I've just kind of summarized and pulled out some key, key passages that help us understand the context of when David wrote this. So a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now, remember, the capital at that time in uh, Israel was Jerusalem. That's where the king's palace was. That was that main area. So that's where they're at. They're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill, uh, and they're going to take off, and you're going to see that. Uh, and all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Now, if you know the geography of Israel and Jerusalem in particular, Jerusalem sits on a hill, and there's valleys all around it, and one of the main valleys to the east is the Kidron Valley. There's a creek that runs through it, and that was essentially like the city limits. Okay, that was kind of the city limits of the, uh, the king's jurisdiction, so to speak, in terms of the local city. And once you got over the, the brook, you were kind of considered out into the wilderness. The Mount of Olives was the first main uh, geographic landmark that was just outside that. So here they are in the, heading into the wilderness. It says, then the king said to Zodak, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. Now remember, there's no temple at this time in David's life, so the, the place they worshiped God was where the ark was, and there's a tabernacle, kind of a tent, and that was the space where, uh, where God's presence resided. So the ark symbolized God's presence, and David was saying, hey, that stays in the city even though we're escaping, he was sending that back and hoping that he'd have the opportunity to come back and be in that unique dwelling place. But he says, if he says, meaning God, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him, meaning God, do to me what seems good to him. So David is realizing in these circumstances, I don't know what God's up to. If he wants me to remain king, great. If he's using this situation to throw me out as king, you know, that's his prerogative. He is trusting God, even in the midst of this horrible circumstance where his own son is trying to take over the kingdom. 
moving on, you see some more. But David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives, so they crossed the Kidron Creek. They're heading up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Next one. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. So the Jordan was, again, beyond the Mount of Olives. You're out smack dab in the middle of the wilderness. So David, in the midst of this setting, records this psalm. This is his prayer. This is his reflection of what things were like. And it's interesting with David, like what was it about David that allowed him on one time hand to fight so courageously to protect Israel, to go up against obstacles like Goliath or to battle all these nations that were trying to destroy the Israelites? Fearlessly, David was a warrior who was willing to put his life on the line to protect God's people. Yet on the other hand, he was courageously willing to hold his own kingship so loosely that when his son brought a coup in, he was willing to say, hey, if God wants me in as king, so be it. I won't destroy this city. God will decide whether I remain as king or whether I don't. A man who was that courageous, that powerful in his fierceness to fight for God's people, but yet also had the courage to hold what God had entrusted to him so loosely that he never believed it was simply his right to have it. That's a sign of his courage, of his understanding that where his identity was, where his strength was, where his life was, was not in the things or the power or the places that he possessed here in this earth. You see, until we're willing to courageously face death, we really aren't really capable of enjoying life, of truly embracing life. You see, you won't live until you're confident that you're going to die well. One of the things I, I see so much in our modern day society, I see it even in myself, is statements that we make all the time that show how little we understand this concept. Things like this, you'll hear people as they talk about death, you know, I, I'm okay with dying, but I just wanna see my kids grow up. If I can just see my kids grow up, then you know, I'll be content, I'll be ready to go. Or I just wanna see all my children married off. As long as they're married off and they're good, then, then I'll be content and I'll be ready to go. Or if I can just hold that first grandchild, man, if I can just hold them in their arms, I'll be so ready to go. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of those events. But our thinking, when we think like that about life, betrays the fact that we have so little concept of the glories and the beauty of being in God's presence. That we would somehow think that any event in this world even compares for a moment to what it's like to be in the presence of God betrays the fact that we really don't know how to live. I've been thinking and pondering about how to illustrate this concept to make it real, and there's really no earthly way to do it. 
but I'm going to give you one anyways. And it's going to seem silly simply because it's so profound to even think that we would ever find more joy in this world than we will in God's presence. But bear with me as I try to illustrate. I want you to picture for a moment that you have the most ideal and perfect grand vacation that you have ever wanted or desired in your life and it's planned and it's paid for and it's coming up. It's coming up next week. It's all inclusive. Every single meal you could want, every single activity you could want, every single person you could possibly imagine that you want to spend it with, everything is taken care of. Your absolute dream vacation. And you're coming up and, and, it's, and it's coming up that next night and you go to bed that night and the next morning you get up and your spouse says, hey, honey, it's time to take off. We gotta get to the airport or we gotta get to wherever you're going and you stop and this is what, this is what it would be like for you to, to, to say you wanna hang on to this life. You're saying, you know what? I just wanna, I just wanna mow, mow the lawn one more time. Just let me wait a little bit. I wanna see the grass grow. I want it to get long again. I wanna, I wanna just mow that thing down and see it when it's all clean. And, and you know what? The dishes, I just wanna see the sink fill up. I want the laundry to pile up. I wanna do one more load of laundry because I just wanna see that laundry completed again before we go. And you know, our, our favorite show that we've been watching on Netflix is coming up, the next episode's coming up. It's coming up on Wednesday. Just, just hang out for a few more days. I wanna see that next show before we go. And your spouse would look at you and go, really? Are you like crazy that you wanna wait around for these things when this is awaiting you? You see, that's exactly how we are in this life. And it's not that any of those things are wrong or bad. It's just the fact that we desire them so much that we would ever think that those things would satisfy us like one moment even in the presence of God just reveals our absolute brokenness. It reveals why we have so little courage to face death in this world because we found so little satisfaction in the next. See, the truth is our mortal death, our final death, is just the final death, the final breath of thousands of deaths. You start dying the moment you take your first breath in this world. Your whole life is made up of death. It's dying dreams, it's dying relationships, it's dying financial goals, it's, it's dying career goals, it's all these things, it's dying marriage goals and family goals, all these things that you think are gonna be fulfilled in this world but never are. And until you're willing to face those deaths courageously because you know of the life that awaits you, you're incapable of truly living in this world. That's why David was able to live the way he did. That's what we need to do. We need to be so satisfied in the steadfast love of God that it gives us infinite courage to face death. So how do we do that? We know what we need to do, but how do we do that? The rest of the psalm is gonna teach us that. So let's dig into verses five and six and see how David teaches us to do that. Verse five and six say this. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. In the Hebrew, that's fajita. That's what that word is. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So here's what David's saying. is I'm satisfied when I regularly meditate on God. I'm satisfied or I grow in satisfaction when I meditate on God. I grow in satisfaction when I meditate on God. Listen to what he says. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He's stating this as a fact. When was this gonna happen? Well, he tells us, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David's using parallelisms. This is all poetry. And so these are often parallel statements that give us a complete picture. When I meditate on you in my bed or when I ponder you in my bed, so when he's at night when he's sleeping or when he's up and doing his work during the watches of the night. So it's pretty much night and day. You see that in other psalms. He's saying, when I'm working and when I'm sleeping, my mind is constantly thinking about you, Lord. You are the person that first and foremost consumes my thoughts. Meditation, to give you a concept, because there's so much misunderstanding about this concept nowadays, here's what meditation means from a biblical perspective. It's a focused and prolonged contemplation of truth about God in order to grow in my love for and obedience to God. That's a good concept of meditation. Modern day meditation is this concept of how do I empty my mind of anything? You know, oh, oh, and I just want to disconnect from reality. But that's not real. How does that help you in anything? That's no different than getting stoned or getting drunk. You're just disconnecting from reality in a different way so that you don't have to face what's there. Meditation is you pondering and thinking more and more about what truly is real so that you're not deceived by the things that appear to be real in this world that we live in. So it's not a disconnection, it's a greater connection. So the concept, what's interesting is if you study the Hebrew word for meditate, it's a word in its root meaning that just means a groan or an uttering or it's almost a murmuring is the concept. So it can be used of animals. It can be used of humans, you know, talking under their breath. It's kind of that thing or, or an animal when he's chewing or making noises. That's what the word meditation actually means. It can be used like a, a cow. Some will say that it's used like a cow uh, chewing the cud. It keeps bringing up the food that's in its stomach. You know, they have like seven stomachs, so it sends it in and it brings it back up, chews it for a while, back down. It's continuing to digest what it's got in its stomach. It's an active thing, not a passive thing. It's not something where you just lay down and, and say, I'm gonna disconnect from the world. This idea of meditation is you focusing your energies and pondering what it is you've been reading. It's this idea where you're constantly thinking about your love for God and, and who he is, and as you read his word, you're meditating, you're pondering, and you're going, God, what is it in this world that I have so attached my love and my affections to that I somehow desire them more than I desire you? And God, why would I desire them more than you? That's meditation. That every time you go to your Bible, it's not just a gathering of facts. 
It's a gathering of information about God in order to grow in my love for and obedience to God. Can I be real honest with you for a moment? Not like I haven't been honest with you up to this point, but it's just one of those Laredo phrases, right? Uh, let me be honest. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I think we as Christians have done a great disservice to this concept, at least American modern Christians. Here's what I see happening in much of Orthodox Christianity. I see a whole lot of truth searching. I see a whole lot of Bible studying. But I see very little meditation. And we pack our heads with all kinds of Bible knowledge, but it does very little to deepen our hearts for love and toward obedience. In fact, we get more excited about our method of Bible study. And if you study the Bible like I study the Bible, then you're acceptable than we do about the majesty of God. And I picture it like this. Modern day Bible study and, and, and packing our heads is kind of like how we go to Golden Corral. Right? We go to Golden Corral and we just pack everything we can. Man, I just stuff this. Let me just stuff it into our faces. And you don't even enjoy any of it. You just sit down at the end and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't do anything now. But I ate way more than you did. Did you try that one? Yeah, I put it, it was mixed in with this other stuff too. I don't even know what it tastes like, but I packed a lot of it into me. And we are Christians with spiritual indigestion because we don't take the time to let these truths sink into our hearts and transform us into love for God. One of the things that I've learned, I say this because that has been me for a good portion of my life. And some things and some people have impacted me in such a way that, that I've learned to read the Bible and pause and, and see the person of Jesus Christ in every section of Scripture of how he fulfilled that for me. Not how I can accomplish it, it so that I can somehow be saved, but how he fulfilled that for a broken, messed up sinner like me. And when I grow in my love for him through that, that's what changes me. That's why when you hear me preach every Sunday, most likely you're gonna hear me come to some point in the message where you're gonna catch a picture of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this passage. Do you know why that is? Because if you leave here impressed with me and my message that's going to do you no lick of good the rest of your life but if you leave here more in love with the person of Jesus Christ you can't help but change see that's what this truth is all about that's what made David so different is he pondered he thought it was a relationship he had with God that was always thinking about him. And when you think about him, you can't help but to be changed. Look at what David wrote in Psalm 119. If you've never read Psalm 119, I'll, I'll talk about this in a moment, but he says, as pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. See, whatever's coming around him in life, that's where he found joy. In fact, 
If you've never read Psalm 119, and if, if you're on a journey right now, I would encourage you, this is a psalm to just spend some time in. It's a whole psalm where it uses the Hebrew alphabet, and every paragraph in there starts with the, the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the whole book, or the whole chapter, is about the word of God or the person of God. Almost every single verse includes it in there. And it's a passage that shows the joy that comes in just knowing the Lord and what he's taught. So how do I grow in satisfaction when I meditate on God? David's gonna give us two perfect examples in this passage, and I'm gonna look at both of them here. So the next one's in verses seven and eight. Let's continue on and see what he says. He says this. Notice the first word here is he's giving us the reason. The reason why his soul is satisfied when he remembers them is he says this. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, I've written this one. Uh, I've structured it like it would be in the Hebrew because it's a, a, a chiasm or a sandwich. David's saying, for you have been my help. Your right hand upholds me. So those two lines are parable. You're my help. Your right hand upholds me. And then inside, he says how that is. He says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. He's talking about nearness in the middle. It's David's nearness to God that results in God's help and his right hand upholding him. To be in the shadow of someone's wing or a bird's wing, you gotta be really close to that bird. You gotta be hiding under that bird, meaning your life is below them. You can't be in the shadow if you think you're above the bird. You're underneath him. So David gives us a great tip on how we can meditate on God. And here's how we would summarize it. I am satisfied when I regularly meditate on God as Savior. I am satisfied when I regularly meditate on God as Savior. Do you ever think about this? Uh, we find joy and satisfaction in whatever saves us. This happens all the time, right? You're hungry, right? Like you guys get by the end of your sermon messages on Sunday and you're thinking, okay, Chad, I've had enough of you. You can't save me anymore, but taco palenque? Now that could save me right now. That's right, I just had to get my taco palenque reference in for the day. But right, when you're hungry, man, you're satisfied. You find joy in a meal that satisfies your hunger. When you're scared, or you're facing a difficult circumstance, you find satisfaction or joy in a person that comes alongside you and gives you some support and protection. When you're in debt and you're feeling the pressures of financial insecurity, you find satisfaction and joy when a financial windfall comes your way. And when you're lonely, or you're struggling, you find joy, you find satisfaction in a relationship that comes into your life. You see, we naturally are satisfied by the things that save us. But here's the problem. Until you recognize that none of these earthly things or none of these earthly people can ever ultimately save you from the last death that you will face, you're doomed to face a life of dissatisfied saviors, of little saviors. And you're doomed to a life that will worship these little gods in your life. 
See, until you see that only God can ultimately save you from that final death, and even more so and tangibly, that God is the one behind all those little saviors in your life, you'll never have the courage to face death, and you'll never be satisfied in it. See, to courageously face death, you must put to death any hope that you have in temporal things. That's the only way you'll ever face death courageously is to put to death any hope that you have in temporal things and see the true Savior is the ultimate reflection of that. Last thing we see in this passage. Verses 9 through 11 say this. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Jackals were like the scoundrels of that time. They were the last ones to come and eat what was left. So that, that, just think of them as, as they'll, they'll be the leftovers, right? What's left when everyone else is, is eaten off of it. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by his name shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Here's my last point for you. Uh, I'm satisfied when I meditate on God who judges evildoers. I'm satisfied when I meditate on God who judges evildoers. These are the two things. I'm satisfied when I meditate on God, my Savior, and I'm satisfied when I meditate on God who judges evildoers. You see, one of the primary reasons we hate death is because it seems unfair. It just seems unjust. It seems wrong. Whether it's a, an ultimate death and it's someone whom we loved and we think, yeah, it's a good person. They just shouldn't have died. It's just wrong and we get angry about it. We get upset. We just feel like there's something out of whack in our universe. It's, it, it seems unjust. Or it's a little death in our family or in our lives. Oh, you don't get the promotion that you thought you deserve or this relationship or this marriage or this family or this promotion or this school activity or whatever it is doesn't go the way it should have. And you go, that's just wrong. You see, built within every human being is this concept of justice. Now it's broken in us. And that's why we often seek it out in wrong ways. That's why even families will spend their whole life trying to rectify an injustice that's happened to them, maybe a murder or a rape or something, and they will pour their whole lives into getting justice for that person. because of that presence of justice, of us knowing something's wrong when these things happen. But here's where we miss it. We can get the justice we want in this world, the way we try to get it through vindication or, or even legal justice, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things, but understand this. That never restores the joy that we had in whatever it is we lost. You see, man's best attempt at justice only brings a perpetrator to justice. It never restores the joy or the love that we lost. That's why we desperately need a true judge. That's why you can't worship a God of love without worshiping a God of wrath. 
Uh, you can say, oh, I don't like the wrathful God. I want to throw this away. And that's common in our modern society. But you know what? You don't even want what you think you want. Because there's no such thing as a God of love who is not also a God of wrath and justice. Let me illustrate. This is so important. Think of a parent. You can't be a loving parent unless you're a parent of wrath and justice. Say, come on, Chad, that doesn't sound right. It doesn't seem loving. Okay, let me ask you then. If you're loving as a parent, would you let a child molester into your home whenever they want to come in? Or a verbal abuser or a physical abuser? Would you allow people like that to come into your home and continue to harm your kids? Because a loving parent or a loving God should accept everyone. No, that would not be loving. Because love protects what is good against what is evil. And love is selective. Love requires justice. Love requires truth. And when you meditate on that, when you ponder that, when you recognize that this God is going to bring not just justice to all evil, but what you lost and that love that you no longer can experience because it was unjustly taken to you will be infinitely more fulfilled the moment you are in his presence. No one in this earth can offer you that. But God offers it to you in spades. What you think you lost in this world will be abundantly more fulfilled in the reality that this world was simply a shadow of. And that's what David recognized here. You see, when push comes to shove, all of today's points come together in one person and one event. That person is Jesus Christ. That event is the crucifixion and resurrection. Only the most satisfying and steadfast love would drive someone to live a perfect life sinless life only to be treated like a criminal and the worst of sinners in order to pay your debt and mine only the most satisfying and steadfast love could possibly cause someone to live in that manner see if anyone deserved to skip death it was Jesus but instead he took our death he took our sin he took our consequences so that he could offer you and me his life, his righteousness, and his reward. So how can we grow to be dissatisfied in the love of Jesus so that we might live more like him and no longer fear death? Let me give you a couple practical applications as we close. Meditate on the joy of knowing that life with God and our future is so amazing that Jesus was willing to suffer unjustly for you and for me so that you and I could enjoy that. Just ponder that. That's what David's talking about. Meditate on your Savior. 
See, we don't often think about that. We don't think about how much we're willing to sacrifice to bring someone we love into something that we enjoy. Let me just give you a couple illustrations that might capture this. Would you ever do this? Would you as a student, would you ever bust your butt studying for an exam, putting aside every other activity that you love to do and saying, this exam is so important to me. I'm gonna study to make sure I get an A while another kid in your classroom is goofing off, screwing around, not doing any of that. And when the exam comes, you get the A, they get an F. But your desire is so strong that they know what it's like to receive the reward of an A, that you tell your teacher, give him the A. I'll take the F. Have you ever loved and longed for something so much that that longing spilled over to wanting others to experience what they didn't deserve. Or, or maybe it was work and you worked nights and days and weekends to get that promotion that you would so long to have thinking that, man, this promotion, this position will be so satisfying and your coworker is skipping work. They're calling in sick when you know they're not sick and it eventually results in them getting fired and you end up getting that promotion. But it's so satisfying, it's so gripping to you that you say, I'll give up my promotion so that he can experience it. And I'll take his firing. I'll go unemployed while he receives the joy of my reward. Have you ever experienced something so satisfying that you'd be willing to do that. Because that's what Jesus did for you and me. And see, when you ponder that, when you've been thinking about that, it changes your heart. It changes how you face death in this world. What is it in your life you are so afraid of dying that you can't truly live? What is it in your life today that you are so afraid of dying that it's not allowing you to live? Is it a relationship? That you're clinging to this relationship so badly because you think if this relationship dies, you have no chance of life. Is it a, a career? Is it a financial situation? Is it your bank account or your retirement? Is it your status in our community? And you think, if I lose this, if this dies in my life, I can't have joy anymore. If my marriage crumbles, if my family isn't perfect in the ideal that I think it has to be for me to have joy, I just can't go on anymore. Because if you can put anything in that category, then your fear of death will keep you from living the way God's called you to live. And you've come to think that something in this world can possibly satisfy you more than the very one who created everything that you enjoy. Let's pray.